0: This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. well, Kev, here we are again, another podcast, another show. And we've got uh, we got Robin on the phone,
1: right? Yeah, to yeah, she's gonna be on, yeah. Her home improvements. She's gonna be talking about her project we just started, and it was a little bit of time into the making, but it's a basement they're gonna be doing completely gut and a bathroom. So Robin, hey, thanks for coming on your Valuable Home podcast and doing this.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Hi, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin's helping us remodel our basement and a bathroom and we're doing the basement because we got flooded out with Ida and oh, uh, boy. we had to first get yeah, big mess. We had about a foot of water in the basement. We had to first get better sump pumps put in, get a home generator, and then we contacted Kevin and he's going to make it fabulous. We're putting in a gym area in one section, so we'll have a gym floor in one area and then we're going to put a wine bar. In the other section. Well, sounds nice. And um, looking very forward to it. Beautiful cabinets with some shelving, lots of wine, so my husband will be very happy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask that. Who's going to be the more of the wine drinker?
3: Oh, it's definitely Dan.
1: All right, because, the, Ron, we're putting two refrigerators one smaller one closer to the, the workout area, which is for him to drink wine while he's working out. Yeah. And then they have a tall one down that there, works. too. That works. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do while you're riding bikes, so no, what's no. the difference?
0: <laughs> so. no. Do you live near like a creek or something? What happened? A foot of water is a lot of water.
3: We live on a golf course, and we are on the top of a hill, which you would think, would, yeah, or almost the top of the hill, which you think would be protective. But we get all the runoff from the golf course. There's a sewer grate on the side of our house, and just the volume of water during Ida, and then couple that with the power outage, the water just poured in.
0: Power um, outage, so your sump wasn't up. working. Nothing, everything. It was perfect storm, right? <clears throat> Correct. Yeah.
3: Correct. Correct. And we were down at the beach. Our grown son was home, and, you know, we sent him to the basement because there was a tornado watch. We actually got our neighborhood, not our neighborhood, but like a block, a mile away, was hit with the tornado. So we sent him downstairs, and then he said, oh, no, the water's coming in. And Dad said, move the wine. <laughs> Priority. So there's nothing else down there. It's all storage. And, you know, we had a little living area for him when he was growing up. So that all got destroyed. Um, he saved the wine, so that was really good. And um, now we're rebuilding and looking forward to having that all done nice and um like i said we picked up beautiful cabinets and cabinetry and then countertops and kevin made some suggestions about putting in some beautiful shelving so we're very much looking forward to having it done it's been a long time you know almost over a year and a half
0: oh Um, you've been living with that yeah oh boy yeah my husband
3: does his peloton downstairs in in the muck you know Mm. with half the drywall gone and it was it's been you know the dirt comes upstairs and so very much looking forward to having
0: it done. I'll bet you can't wait to get this done. Too. You know you know what? You have to listen to this whole show because coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, we have a representative from Pew Family Trust on to talk about exactly what you're experiencing. More and more people are experiencing floods. Floods happen every day in the United States of America anymore. And a lot of people don't know that. On a lot of different levels they happen. So you want to hear the whole show. Listen to the whole show.
3: It's so dirty and so damaging oh, yeah. and so much work to clean it up. It it really was a mess. So hopefully all the things that we've done, we put in very high powered sump pumps. And like I said, a whole house generator that should take care of any other major storms.
1: So backtracking up what you talked about the last year and a half, when I went down there, this is almost actually a horror story. We could even do a horror story on this. So they hired a company to come in and put a new sump pump system in drainage on both sides of that. Great idea. So Ryan. Ron, you tell me. So you have a finished basement, because their basement was finished prior to this, that's so a shame, that's what yeah. we're ripping out. Yeah. You're going to run a new sump pump line, and you have a wall that's built, 17-foot wall, and you have two-by-fours, and you have plywood, and you have drywall to finish it off really nice. If you were trying to get the line over there, would you take a foot and a half of all the drywall plus all the studs and cut them all out at the bottom and let all that weight just hang in the air? No. When I first got there, I was looking to going, what's going on with this one? Yeah, what, how did that happen? So, Robin, you want to explain the story? On I know we can do it as a horror story, but it's just something that uh, people should know that this is not the way to put in a sump pump pit and how to run the line to the drainage pit.
3: They Chose not to run the line out the front of the house because they said they would have had to rip up the concrete. So what they did is they ran the line literally around the whole perimeter of the basement, the corner where the sump pump was. In doing so, the drywall was pulled up because of the flood, but what they then did is cut, literally cut all the joists.
1: Every stud was cut.
3: Uh, every, <laughs> like, all the whole perimeter, all the joists were cut. And so you, what you have now, looking at it, are just... Studs that were, you know, from the ceiling down to about a foot and a half off the floor.
0: Well, now you we can call them studlets.
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and then, uh, you know, we had asked for money back, saying we were going to have to pay to restud the basement, and they told us just to sister the studs, and um, we told them no. <laughs> and I and I I called the township, and the township township said, of course, you can't do that, and no. so we pushed back, and we did get some money back to i uh, i'm sure it doesn't isn't going to cover the cost of reframing everything but it it was to prove a point they really didn't handle how they did the the piping um, they did a great job with the sump pump, you know, the quality of the sump pumps that are in the wells. So that's great. But they certainly didn't do a good job running the executing, piping. Executing,
1: yeah, the piping. Yeah. Couldn't they just go on underneath the uh, walkway? Well, as soon as I suggested that, I said, you, you see it like the Verizon and the gas lines yeah. are coming out. Yeah. it's a th- So you have from the foundation to the walkway, there's 12 feet of topsoil. So you would dig it out. We're going to dig it, drop it into the topsoil, right? And then they're, the, the walkway's three foot. So all you do is you start digging one side and dig the other side. Right, it right. takes about fifteen minutes with a professional landscaper, and then he's going to continue to drain it out towards this, the drain. It's not much to do. It's more destructive of the sod that they're going to put back together, but it's a fifteen minute fix. But instead, they they cut the whole the whole area out. I could I couldn't believe it. I I Robin, I had to be laughing, but I went, when I, they probably slept at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> I can tell you that. Now We want to get them as a the sponsor because that's one of the great things you can say. I, I slept there because they sure had no clue what they were doing to run this pit because they did stick it out the side. But you know when you have water, so when the piping goes down from the new way, they ran it. So they went out to the left side of the house. The piping goes up, and then it would drain down. So you always want to have it on a down angle. Right. There was a certain point where they didn't strap it, and then it goes back up again. So all that water sitting in the, the piping there. So we're cutting it all out. In that far corner where that sump pump is, we're just going to run it straight up, go right out the band joist, and then the landscaper is going to connect it from there and do his landscaping and properly run it away from the house. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> without
3: and, damaging my concrete
0: without damaging the concrete yeah
1: i know you said it's been pretty right. much a mess because we were we're in the process there's no way we can salvage this so number two things number one is i'm glad we ripped the basement out the complete basement beside not being an inspection there's no inspections that were done so there's no fire stopping uh, so there's a lot of issues that we have to correct now but one of the funny things is we were going to leave the framing around the ductwork because that didn't get wet so dave takes the first piece and just pulls on a little bit the entire ceiling a good probably 20 feet four foot section just collapsed on us because they used a a little bit of a drop ceiling rail and they glued it to it. So I don't know how it didn't fall down, but if you yanked on it just a little bit, that whole thing was coming down. So I'm so glad that we did this ahead of time. So we stripped everything out. We have to reframe it because we did get permits on this and the township's going to be looking, for us to build it back to code they want to say it yeah. yeah but yeah this was definitely something different because i what, what i always you say you can tell it's a handyman when you look at the wiring the way it was run so you come from the switch to where all the recess lights are it mm-hmm. looks like spaghetti mm. it's not tied in it's not Unreal. looped anywhere it's just sitting this all loose and loose so we're going to rip everything out we're going to strip it so now that we've got the basement we started we've ripped out we're going to start framing tomorrow and what else are we doing with the house
3: the hall bathroom, been very much loved from our son in the last 24 years, and we have almond tile and almond grout and an almond tub and an almond toilet, and that's all going. We're putting in porcelain tile that looks like um, the Carrera Gold, and then on the walls we're doing just a, a white subway in a, a vertical subway offset pattern with a R- darker grout.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds very nice. Very much
3: looking forward to it. The yeah, bathroom's nice, given hey? us a lot of love, but it, in need of updating.
1: Updating, yeah. Yeah, updating. Yeah, that probably, every one of the development there, there's probably at least over 2,000 homes in there. They're probably all the same thing. 2,000 homes in development? Yeah, it's a big, big development. How old is
0: development?
3: We built the house in um, 96.
1: It's a newer house. 96, yeah.
3: There are about 379 homes and townhomes.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never been further yeah, no. back into there. I, I've been at that golf course. I got to the course a couple of times. Very nice place that you're at. Right. But we had a great conversation this morning. She said, you know, when I built the house, I should have done another thing is raise the ceiling up. Because when you have an eight-foot ceiling, you got to look at your ductwork. The ductwork gets dropped down below the seven-foot mark. Mm-hmm. And then if you're going to do any kind of finished ceiling off that, you have to build a grid system. That's got to get it close enough to this. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, I, I wish we did the higher ceiling. But as we talked about, just a when we were in the process of doing this, I don't know why they didn't do it, is that they couldn't dig down further because they said the water table is at that point. That was the lowest point. But we, they could have used the extra one foot extension to raise the house. It doesn't affect any elevation except the steps in the front, mm-hmm. but I guess they didn't want to do that. I guess not. Yeah. yeah so that's, that was only the downside with it, but the basement's going to look great.
3: No, but yeah, but Kevin's going to move the central vac line and lift it up a little bit to give us at least another inch and a half in the ceiling downstairs. So that's really good. That was a great suggestion.
1: That's Dave. Yeah, you know, when Dave saw that, they, there's a central vac system in that. The main duct, the mm-hmm. line is run. It's, gonna, it's short and it's below. So we either got to move it to get the ceiling up, or you just leave it. So yeah,
0: higher ceilings are. I mean, that's that's where you want to be today. You know,
1: right, right. And our hands are tied with what code is because the inspector's going to look at yep. it and trying to get it up as tight as yep. possible. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a lot of bracing because we're going to try to go to a two by three with joist hangers and then just brace it every so many feet. So it, it's very little weight. But I did talk to them. They said, that's fine. As long as you have the bracing, you can't do a big span. It's got to be very short spans of to All hold right. it so up. So you're going
0: to have a whole new look there. So- oh, yeah.
3: There was a drop ceiling down there. It's going to change everything. Mm, yeah. New good. flooring, new carpeting on the steps going upstairs. You know, there's going to be wine on the wall, wine in the fridge, TV, like a little sitting area. I have a pinball machine that my husband bought me years ago. We just got that refurbished. And so we got to figure out where that's going to fit in. So we're very much looking forward to
0: having it all done. So well
1: worth the wait then, right?
3: Absolutely. Save mm-hmm. it for the best. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Okay. It's really going to look nice. The bathroom's going to be upgraded. But I, what I like to do is have you back on when we start to, the, the finish process, getting the products in there, getting the colors so people then can see. And I have some pictures on our social media feed of what it's going to look like when everything starts. Do you to be- take befores? You know what? I never do. You really <laughs> should. You really should. <laughs> <You> Robin, <really laughs> really do you have any before pictures?
3: I don't even know. I will have to look. I might have some before pictures of the bathroom because I was doing the, you know, put the tile in and you could do it online to see what the tile looks like in your space, but I don't know if I deleted them. I'll have to look. And the one thing I wanted to say about the bathroom upstairs, Kevin sent me to great cabinet company. I'm getting drawers in the cabinet and the drawers are shaped like a U, so it cuts out the space for the plumbing. But instead of having a cabinet to know, like nowhere where you have to climb in to find things, I'm going to have drawers that pull out where I can be organized and neat and have easy accessibility. So I'm really excited about that.
1: Very nice feature.
3: Oh, it's a huge feature for me. It's huge. It's really, really wonderful.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the most important part is I, as I keep saying to you is that whose house is this, it's your house. So we'll do what you like. So that's why I said you just pick what you need. Cause we were talking about a medicine cabinet. And I said, you can probably eliminate that with the drawers that you have there now with the vanity because you have easier access. You don't have to reach over anything. Mm -hmm. So with this being a little bit easier access, makes a lot more better storage, easier access to it. You can be well organized with it. And you're not losing any additional space. You're do actually you put gaining. in
0: medicine cabinets anymore when you when you do uh, bathrooms. It's no. so, sort of like a passe kind of concept, isn't it?
1: They went out with bell bottoms. Bell with bottoms. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're they're obsolete anymore. Nobody. Right. I haven't put them in. The biggest thing right now is lighted mirrors. So when you hit them, the back of it actually lights up. So it's not really for lights, more for ambiance and decor. Because we're putting more recess lights in, so you're going to have a lot more light in there. Uh, all anyway, LEDs, I would imagine. Everything's right? yeah. LED. Okay. Yeah. yeah. see, what a lot of people always tell me, they say, Kevin, why are you putting all these extra lights? in? I'm not putting extra lights in because I. Want to spend your money? I'm putting the extra lights in because you're putting beautiful product in, and I don't like dark spots. and mm-hmm. So I want it to be well lit consistently throughout either a kitchen or a basement or a bathroom. So that's why we're actually putting But we're over killing the light, and it's going to be well lit. And uh, I'll have those pictures on social media. Okay. All right, Ryan. Now it's time for the horror story. And this was one one of the Facebook. One of our listeners up in uh, Scranton, PA. Okay. Uh, But he just posted on his uh, social media account. But people have been saying this and complaining about it. It's contractors now complaining, not homeowners, but contractors. And what they're complaining about is good contractors, again, get permits, do the job right, and they get dumpsters. And dumpsters are expensive right now. Are they really? Oh, yeah. Is there a reason for that? Um, Well, everything's going up. mm -hmm. So uh, I saw in his his post, which I'm just going to relate to, that he had it at a shop and somebody just decided to use his dumpster and throw trash in. So another contractor went to (laughs) his job site and just threw trash in, filled half the dumpster up. Fingering, well, well, he's not going to remind. Nah, don't worry about it. Listen, these hacks out there, that's all they have to do because... He probably can't afford it. Well, if you bid low... You're not going to have the money for the dumpster. For the dumpster, so they yeah. figure that maybe I will drive around a little bit because use he somebody else's dumpster. <laughs> yeah. So when people are like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Well, well it is to the contractor because now they got to get another dumpster. So it's not using part of that dumpster. If it's a four hundred dollar dumpster or a seven hundred dollar dumpster, if you use just half of that, and he fills the rest up, it's not four hundred worth of use. He's got to then get another get full another- dumpster. Yeah. Okay. Which so is still going to cost him. Was that $700? the case here? Was it? Did he? Did it fill it? Uh, there was enough trash in there. to probably half the dumpster. But this has happened a lot of times. I have to me probably about a year and a half ago.
0: Seriously, somebody else, another contractor comes along just
1: uses a dumpster. Uses the dumpster. Sees a dumpster and starts to use it. It dumpsters cost a lot of money and I, it's <laughs> that
0: that takes chutzpah, I'll tell you.
1: Well, it's the first time I think in uh, the 9 plus years you and I've been doing this that uh, this was a complaint, but it has been coming more and more and then when I saw it I said to Frank I'm going to use this on uh, on the show but if you're a contractor, if you're a wannabe contractor and you're still even starting the business, it's real simple. Buy a permit, get a dumpster, and pay for it and put it into the job. Don't put that on How somebody else. How much do else. they run? How much do they run? 400 to $700, depending on the size. The size of the dumpster. Yeah, 8-yard, 12-yard, 15-20. There's a variety of sizes. You can get even an 8-yard. So is was eight.
0: this a small one or a big one that this guy used?
1: Uh, this was a nice size. Probably about a 20-yarder that he had.
0: So $700.
1: Yeah, so filled up about $350 worth of trash in a seven yard dumpster. <laughs> So this, you know what, we always talk about horror stories with homeowners, but contractors deal with this also. I mean, look, it's not just dumpsters. We go with supply chain issues and when people are still saying, you know, you are still getting supplies, it's better in some cases, but we're managing it better. So it makes it still more difficult for us. We don't need some other contractor who's trying to get into the business using our dumpsters. We want to take care of the homeowner. So when the homeowner gets charged by us, the contractor, all these fees are included into it. It's not that we're making money on it. We've got the dumpster. We've got to get a permit. Uh, we've got to do so many things that are incorporated into the job. And that's what's indicated in the price that we give our customers. Exactly. So why is it that somebody else feels like, you know what? I don't feel like doing this. I'm going to put that blame in, and just put the onus on somebody else and let them deal with it. See, that that frustrates a lot of contractors. I know people are probably thinking, saying, well, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And as me being a contractor and good contractors that are doing it right, it's very frustrating to have this happen. But again, it's, I mean, how many sure hard yeah. stories we've been doing over the past, you know, nine plus 500. Yeah. It's bad enough that there's probably in, in my eyes, 95% of the contractors I deal with are absolutely horrendous. And you know, when people, what I say, they say, why do you say that? I'm like, well, let's look at your work. Cause all the local guys, I have all the pictures on my phone. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, here's the job you did. Let's talk about it. Well, they get upset with me. I said, Well, why are you upset about me asking you questions? Because this roof here I'm showing you, you didn't replace the flashing. And I went to the homeowner and the contract says, You're replacing the step flashing. You didn't do it here. So, yeah, the homeowner's gonna be upset with you. I got a great idea. If you say you're gonna do it, it's in the contract. Ryan, watch this. Do it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> How hard is this? And this is why I say to them, like, listen, in my area, in, in Philadelphia, wherever I work, so north of Philly from Bucks County, Montgomery, every roofer I say to them. 95% of the roofs that I physically witnessed are done wrong or could be done better. And they all look at me like, well, can you talk about it? And I said, well, let's talk about proper way of ice shield. The way to do it that way, where you never have a problem. You're flashing. Can we go to your jobs and look at your jobs and take a look and see if it's done correctly? Nah, nah, we don't want you on our job. Something could happen. I'm like, well, what could happen? Ask the homeowner. Say, listen, we'll give you $500 off. I even know that they didn't replace the flash. I don't even offer guys, let's listen, I'll give you $500 to go take a look at. You could go up there. I don't want to go up there for insurance reasons and just let's take some pictures. Nah, you know, we don't do that. Why Why don't you want to do that? Because you ripped the homeowner off. And that's most of the horror stories that we had are these bad contractors ripping homeowners off. Now we got bad contractors throwing trash in good contractors' dumpsters. It's crazy. The, crazy. Just something to think about that uh, yeah. you know, if you're starting a new company and you, you're going to be doing a job, do it right. Listen, that's what we're in business for, to take care of the homeowners. And that's what the show's about, to take care of the homeowners. So it all rolls into one. If you don't know what you're doing, there are plenty of other businesses you can so do. So in a
0: case like that, couldn't you just drive around the neighborhood? If it happened to you, drive around the neighborhood? There's got to be, the guy's got to be in the neighborhood. He's not going to take the trash from 10 miles away and come f- look for a dumpster, right? He's got to be in the na- same neighborhood, right? Could be. Could be.
1: Just drive around and you never know. go confront him about it. Well, you know, I, I look at that. It, Post, he said he's going to be putting cameras up, which is great. And it's a nice thing. Cameras are cheap right now. You can buy a camera. You can just hook it up, any of the security systems, and just have that. Because punishment should be a lot harder for the bad contractors, and it's just not. Whether it's throwing trash in a dumpster, whether it's doing a bad job. What is the recourse for homeowners? And homeowners, if you think about it, what homeowners got really good recourse when they sued a contractor? Hey, you did a bad job. I'm suing for $3,000. So these are the things you got to look at when you're hiring a contractor that the job's done right and if you as a homeowner don't ask the right questions from the beginning and you're going to put your head in the sand thinking it's going to be a great job chances are there's going to be something wrong with it yeah. that's okay. and in the last two years that i physically witnessed it's it's bad this yeah. industry is really really bad so it's it's a now,
0: lot it's not unusual kevin there's, there are a lot
1: of industries that are really bad right now yeah yeah
0: customer service basically non-existent anymore what's customer service yeah what is it
1: you got to do it yourself you the customer got to service it yourself so i know we talked about that a bunch of times but most of the bigger companies that's what they try to push is the customer service but my question is when i ask those companies i said why do you have service trucks going around fixing all the new work that was installed why don't you have it done right the first time and you're not going to have the problem but that they understand that's part of the, their business is that they're going to sub it out. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an okay job. There's going to be problems that need to be fixed. And they have service trucks that just go fixing all the new job problems when people complain about it. Mm-hmm. So why not do it right the first time? But that's, that's our customer service that I see in the industry today. That uh, it, either you don't have it or you're so big of a company that you have to have it because the jobs that are getting done are so bad. Yeah, I mean, a lot of big companies today with
0: customer service, they farm it out, going overseas. Uh, the connections are bad. The language barrier is there. Oh, there's all sorts of stumbling blocks. And they're not doing it because it costs more money. They're doing it because they're saving money. Saving right? money. Yeah. Yep. So it's it's not just this industry. It's like a, an epidemic.
1: It really is. Do you think it's frustrating to homeowners to have this problem?
0: I mean, it's frustrating to everybody. It's frustrating to a homeowner not to be able to uh, get, like, their telephone company on the phone to question a bill. You know, you can't try to do it. Uh, Somebody should give you a parade if you if you have two customer service calls during a day
1: that go well. You should get an award for it. <laughs> so, that is true. Yeah, because I, I had uh, on one of my rental properties. It took me three months to correct it billing oh. from the gas and electric Three <laughs> and months. that's
0: all your time i mean you work every day right you work every day and you got to get jobs done you got to stay on schedule and you're trying to get customer service on the phone well but wouldn't it be nice if they put somebody on the phone <laughs> to
1: serve the customer well they only go by emails but here's... i'm going off on a tangent here oh, Just, I hear... this is a this is a, something that really bugs me wait well, if you think you bugs bugs they tell me that when i have my gas meter wrong and my electric was wrong they said uh, yeah by the way why don't you go down to the property drive all the way down there to take a picture <laughs> yeah
0: good luck with that yeah
1: I mean, and then they it because they started changing all the electric boxes all the meters were getting changed well they yeah. knew you had a problem but you're telling me to drive which gas is expensive to go down there take a picture for something that you did wrong that's the problem that i think a lot of people are complaining about is that if you're dealing with a company they mess up just own up to it it's not a big deal fix it nobody owns it up to it, right. it anymore they don't and it's not that i wrote a nasty email to them i said just do your job Listen, here's what I want to do, and I'm, I'm sure every homeowner wants to do this provide me a service, bill me correctly, and I'll pay that bill.
0: And that's it. And if I got a problem, if I got a problem, answer the telephone.
1: And that's that's never going to happen again. So that's the horror story for today. I know we get always uh, a plethora of them, but uh, send your horror stories into Kevin at urivaluablehome.net. I'd like to hear some of the horror stories. We're tired of hearing of bad contractors. You can tell us anything. So that's one some something that we did different today was putting trash in somebody else's dumpster. First one we ever done in nine years. And they're always new.
0: <laughs> Got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Kev, is it hard for clients planning large exterior projects to visualize how the colors
1: and textures work together? It used to be, especially when they mix products from different manufacturers. Provia's new website and broad selection of exterior products make my job easy. Clients' faces light up as they choose all the products needed to give their home's exterior a now look with Provia's product line and their amazing new website. We use their visualizer right from my laptop. Hey, the site is amazing.
0: Provia makes color selection a breeze. The website has eight suggested exterior color schemes that can be applied to Provia products or customers can choose shades from any palette to suit their own tastes. The Design Center tab must be a great tool for you in visualizing how all Provia products work in harmony based on window and door configuration, siding, stone and metal roofing color and style.
1: It's brilliant. You can see how Provia products work together on a sample home or a photo of a client's own home. Then you save the work with the My Portfolio tab. The site even lets me take exterior measurements. The new
0: Provia.com and an expansive line of exterior products deliver on Provia's mission, which is to serve by caring for details in ways others won't.
1: For updating home exteriors, our listeners should go to Provia.com slash YVH first and visualize the possibilities. Okay, Ron, now it's time for the college. We're going to be continuing this week for another one. What have we got? We're tackling a, a subject more people should know all about.
0: And that's the subject of flooding across the USA. Here are some facts that everybody should get familiar with all across the country, coastal states, landlocked states, everywhere. And We've got Matt Sanders, Senior Manager, Flood Prepared Communities at uh, Pew Charitable Trust on the phone. Matt, can you run us through them?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think you just mentioned it's a big deal and I, I certainly would concur with that opinion. So simply put, flooding is the most common natural disaster across the nation. Just since 1996, 99% of all U.S. counties have experienced some kind of flood event. Um, so I think another way to think about that is, you know, this is something that really impacts everybody just about everywhere. Um, and so you know that sort of equates to this huge um, degree of monetary loss as well as you know obviously the the unfortunate loss of life that we occasionally see uh, in floods and you know as we've calculated that um, you know we estimate that flood related disasters uh, have cost the nation more than $1 trillion in damages uh, since the year 2000 alone. You know, One of the other things that we've done recently is we conducted an analysis uh, and we've measured that since the year 2000, uh, at least one flood occurred in the United States on nearly 300 days of each year. And so that equates to eight out of every 10 days. So if you think about that in terms of any 10-day increment, chances are there's a flood happening somewhere. Uh, on 80% of those days. Also across that time, flooding has impacted all 50 states, including the uh, not a state, the District of Columbia. And it's equally likely to take place both in coastal states, where I think most people uh, are sort of more accustomed to thinking about big time flood events uh, in landlocked states. So we think this is a big problem. It's something that impacts you know people uh, in their homesteads, as well as community infrastructure. Uh, you know, It's something that when a flood happens in a community, it's uh, it's pervasive. Uh, in its destruction
0: we mentioned the um the dollar value of it but it's also it also a high cost in terms of a loss of life too right
2: yeah absolutely myself and from new orleans originally and I, I don't think i have to sort of tell your viewers what type of uh you know event hurricane katrina was oh, yeah. in 2005 mm-hmm. and the uh you know the immense loss of life there um so yeah it's uh it's a really dangerous situation uh when a flood does happen
0: Well, I'll tell you, I I was in Montana last summer, last August, and uh, the aftermath of flooding there was, I mean, you at least suspect it there along the Yellowstone River. The Yellowstone River, believe it or not, it sounds like it would be like a raging river with a lot of rapids. It really isn't. It's a pretty docile um, river and, and not that wide either. And I'll tell you, I saw wreckage Home wreckage, tree wreckage, this wreckage, that wreckage, piled like 20 feet high along the banks of the Yellowstone River. It was still there. So I'm sure, and uh, Livingston, which is the uh, Montana entrance to Yellowstone Park, was inundated with water. And I think it all uh, resulted from uh, snow melt in, in Yellowstone, right?
2: I believe you are correct. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have uh, a lot of the scientific data uh, on that particular flood, but you're mm-hmm. right. And I, you know, I've been to Yellowstone myself, and what you're seeing is when you have Uh, you know, higher degrees of snowpack melt, like you're describing, right? You have higher volumes of water that are entering into riverbeds and stream channels that are just not uh, equipped to handle that volume of water, right? And so, you know, you sort of mentioned a, a historical precedent by which the Yellowstone River had typically been docile. Uh, Now, if you hit that same uh, riverbed with a a deluge of water, it's not going to be prepared to move that water quick enough or the surrounding areas aren't going to be prepared to absorb that water in a way that would prevent a flood impact.
0: All right. So if you think you're safe, like in a place like California, they've been thinking drought for years now. And all of a sudden, I think we just went through their 13th atmospheric river of the season. And now they're thinking flood, flood, flood. Okay. It's just the reverse of where it was before. So if you think you're safe, you could be only one storm away from a flood robbing you of your home and all your belongings. So, Matt, before we get into this, I first want to thank you and everyone else involved at Pew for leading the charge and letting the gravitas of the Pew organization to this critical issue. I think it's, it's, it's a huge issue in this country, and, it's, and, and you're tackling it, and that's a great thing. So, going back in time, was flooding as severe or widespread like 30 or 40 years ago? And if not, what's changed? More building and flood prone, prone areas, more awareness, or is it the weather itself? Matt? Well,
2: so I would say it's a you know kind of a combination of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you know, uh, certainly in the post World War II era, era and in the time since, we've been experiencing a development boom in the United States, uh, which leads to, to more developed area and more impervious surface, and where you have more impervious surface, you're going to have you know, worse runoff conditions, frankly. And so when, uh, you know, rain does fall in a a high intensity occurrence, that water is not going to be able to go anywhere, it's going to run off, it's going to pool, it's going to cause a flood. So that combined with one of the other things you mentioned, the weather itself, well, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, the sort of the mantra in California has been drought, 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 and now it's flood, flood, flood. Well, you know, those things are not unrelated. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that as atmospheric temperature generally in, in many places around the world and in many places around the United States has, has become elevated, you know, warmer air holds more water. And so uh, generally speaking, uh, if you're reading about a drought in one location across the country, you're probably also going to read about a flood in another location across the country. Sure. Uh, you know, water, water has to go somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. What does, what does NOAA and maybe you can explain NOAA and their work consider a flood-related event?
2: So NOAA is going to consider any documentation uh, where they're finding an overflow of water on normally dry land to be uh, a flood. And so this is, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time is that, you know, people will talk about their own homesteads and they'll say, well, you know, there's the, the stream you know, over on the other side of the property or there's the river over yonder. But like that, you know, that that is never flooded. And so we don't need to worry about that. And we say, well, that's that's not right, because, uh, you know, if you can identify where there's a body of water proximate to where you live, uh, you are going to take on a degree of flood risk. Right. Um, And so the the example that you gave earlier regarding the Yellowstone River is a good one. Right. They had a deluge of water unlike what uh, they had historically experienced. And that caused a fairly catastrophic flood. So, you know, same is going to apply, uh, you know, where you live somewhere and you can identify where there's water nearby. You know, a a deluge of water can happen with reference to one of those uh, streams or riverbeds or if you're in a coastal environment, particularly with respect to uh, intense uh, tropical events and uh, storm surge. You know, so those are all sort of the myriad flood risks that that people can experience. And that's what NOAA is, is counting on an individual basis. And so where you're sort of looking at the statistics that show that, uh, you know, we're having more flood events take place. Um, that doesn't mean that every single one of those floods is of the the, the catastrophic variety that is going to cause widespread damage. But that is an indication that NOAA is being is, is able to identify, uh, you know, water where it shouldn't be uh, on a more prevalent basis.
0: Okay, I've lived along the river in Bucks County for. Most of my adult life. And uh, we had three events. They threw, called them 300-year floods, four years apart. You know, one and then another one. And then the other one preceded by about uh, two years, right? And they were devastating. Uh, all up and down the Delaware River from in, through Bucks County and counties upriver, too. As a matter of fact, in my area, there's a canal, as you well know, right? Yep. A canal that runs up and down and parallels the river. We got and uh, when when I lived right near the river, we had a situation where the banks of the canal broke and uh, burst, and we had this huge wall of water that came in and just wiped out a lot of houses. So it it doesn't you don't have to be even expecting it. The next thing you know, you've got water in your house and your belongings are all destroyed. And I think most people don't look at it that way. It can happen anywhere, correct?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that you uh, mentioned is sort of the the idea of the 100-year flood. And in in the example that you cited, it happening sort of you know, four times in uh, in a, a small number of years, yeah. and, and what that really means when somebody talks about a one hundred year flood, right? That refers to to the one percent annual exceedance probability, and so that means that based on the historic data that we have in place, in any given year, you're going to have a one percent chance of having the type of flood that you're describing, and so mm-hmm. the the way to look at that is to say, well you know, if you had a quote unquote 100 year flood in a given year, that's not to mean that you're not going to have another one. That doesn't mean that you're good for the next 100 years. Um, That means that, you know, when you sort of turn the calendar back over in the next year, you're going to have that same 1% chance of having that flood. And the fact that you're describing sort of more and more of these quote unquote 100 year incidents happening in a short period of time indicates that our historical data is not matching up with with current reality. Um, And so, you know, to your point, you know, given all of the ways that flooding can take place from coastal surge to riverine flooding to intense rainfall event, you talked about the snowpack condition uh, in Yellowstone, um, you know, any one of those drivers can cause a flood event. Generally speaking, uh, you know, we we try to tell people that that no matter where you are, uh, and no matter how well protected you may think you are, uh, you are prone to a flood event.
0: What I, I never growing up, Kev, have you did you ever hear the term atmospheric river before? No. I never have either. Is that is that a new term? Matt, is it something is it a new phenomenon? <laughs>
2: You know, it's uh, it's funny you mentioned that I I feel like in this line of work where we're sort of dealing with the the biblical plagues, if you will, um, you know, we occasionally come across new terminology. And, uh, you know, the short answer to your question is no, I I was not familiar with the term atmospheric river until a couple of years ago. Um, But it describes the condition by which, you know, as I was saying earlier, right, warmer air leads to to more moisture in the air, leads to to, to flooding events, uh, you know, somewhere uh, wherever that air may go. Um, you know, the atmospheric rivers that you're experiencing in California, um, you know, that's really a result of saturated air coming from the tropics and moving to higher latitudes where it, it hadn't been in the past. And so we don't have all the good historic data to know whether or not, you know, two, three, four hundred, five years ago, you know, this type of, quote unquote, atmospheric river was happening in California. Certainly in terms of the history that we can record and refer to, you know, these are unprecedented events. And so that sort of lent itself to, to new terminology to describe those
0: events. California's got a lot to deal with because the atmospheric rivers this year are resulting in snow and water. Is there an impending problem in the next couple of weeks here that's really going to, you know, be a culmination of all this stuff in California?
2: Well, it's certainly possible. Um, You know, I mean, I think sort of predicting when that next event is going to happen is incredibly difficult. But yeah, I mean, to your point... You know, as you're having, uh, as temperatures are getting warmer and you're having more snowpack melt, you know, obviously if that combines with uh, heavy precipitation, that can cause, you know, fairly significant problems in in California and elsewhere.
0: Is Pew's main role, is it raising awareness, marshalling the forces to combat flooding, or helping to improve policies and planning?
2: Well, I mean, I would say it's a bit of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think if you look at, at Pew as an institution, our our main focus is on two things, uh, you know, in, invigorating civic life and improving public policy. And if you think about, you know, what that really means, you know, we've sort of identified what you've identified, that flooding is a big issue. And so we try to work with policymakers, both in state legislatures and in governor's offices and people that are charged within governments to to actually do the work. Uh, to understand the nature of the problems that they're dealing with and try to develop effective uh, policy and funding sources to, uh, to attempt to alleviate and combat those issues. And so, you know, that means different things at different times in different places. And depending on who we're working with, that might mean more public awareness, uh, or it might mean sort of huddling up in an office with a, a legislator somewhere and, you know, hashing out real policies that that legislator can then go take and try to get passed. Um, and so, you know, we try to be flexible and multifaceted. Obviously, you know, my my joining you all today, uh, you know, is an attempt for us to get the word out there and to help people understand better uh, the acute risks that are uh, that we are facing as a nation. Um, and so it's it's sort of all of the above.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when you travel state to state, what are the, pro- well, first of all, are they calling you in or are you raising their awareness and say, hey, we should meet about this? And what are the prime topics of discussion when you go to a a specific state?
2: Well, it's a little of both. Um, I would say, uh, you know, more recently, it's more states approaching us to ask us, uh, you know, what are we seeing nationally? What represents a best practice? What somebody can do to, uh, to, to put in place better policy, better planning, better funding sources, more funding sources to try to alleviate these problems? Um, but it, it really kind of goes back to what you mentioned earlier. I mean, we have a lot of conversations where people say, well, you know, we had this 100 year flood, quote unquote, uh, and then we had it again the next year and then we had it again the following year. Um, and so part of it is is really trying to help people understand that, that you know, the, the idea of the 100 year flood is a misnomer. And so, uh, you know, we're having more severe events. We're having more frequent events. Uh, and that's just a new reality that people have to start to, to really plan for and, and uh, you know, wrap their minds around and, and devote funding and resources to. Um, and so it really requires this great pivot within government to try to put people and time and capacity and money uh, into to trying to uh, to push back these floodwaters.
0: Okay, so when you go into a situation like this in a state, and there are states that are sort of like on a leading edge of that, of this kind of thing, and we'll get into those. But when you go into a state... Who needs? Who needs to be? If you see people in the room, who needs to be by job title, job function in that room when you discuss something like this, and to give you a good feeling that something is something good is going to happen.
2: So I personally feel like uh, it doesn't really matter whether or not somebody has a specific job title, but mm-hmm. it needs to be somebody's job to take this on specifically, right? Somebody that can evaluate states or municipalities or at the federal government level the the, the national uh, you know degree of flood risk exposure today, anticipate what that exposure is going to look like in the future, and really develop a good plan that's going to try to mitigate those anticipated impacts. And so, you know, a lot of states across the country, there are more than 15 now, have appointed what are called Chief Resilience Officers, whose job it is to evaluate that specifically, what's happening today, what's going to happen in the future, how do we work together to figure out a better path forward. Um, and There's actually an, an effort at the federal level now to appoint a national chief resilience officer through uh, a piece of legislation called NCARS, but I think it's less about the job title, although I, I certainly wouldn't advocate against anybody appointing a chief resilience officer, but it's more about it, it really being somebody's primary job to, to think about these things and to develop uh, you know, a real path forward that is going to reduce this risk across whatever jurisdiction they may represent.
0: And should that person have a scientific background and really understand this subject?
2: Well, I think that helps. You know, I mean, I, I myself have a, a background in urban planning, and so I've, I've sort of taken a, a, a circuitous route to the the role that I have. But I think it's more about building a team, right? And so people that can understand. The, the myriad pressures that uh, that lead to flood risk, both from a scientific perspective and from a development perspective, you know, I think those are the people that are best positioned to put together thoughtful plans and put those plans into action. And so, you know, most states have a climatologist. So, you know, if somebody is, is, fulfilling the role of a chief resilience officer or equivalent, and maybe doesn't have that pure scientific background, there are typically resources within a state or within a, a local or certainly within federal government to put the team together by which you do have that scientific expertise. And so it's it's really about bringing together people that understand how to work effectively with communities and understand science and understand economics and understand development. Um, you know, somebody that can wear a lot of different hats and really understand all of the, the implications of both flooding and the, uh, the solutions to flooding.
0: There have to be a lot of discussions, too, when you get into a uh, situation like this. there's got to be a lot of discussions about where does the money come from, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the federal government has made a, a big investment through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Mm-hmm. ARPA was another funding source The recently passed climate bill last year. Uh, sets aside funding to to combat flooding. So there's a lot of federal money on the table. One of the things that that we sort of talk about at the state and local level is being prepared to receive that money. And so if you have a good plan, if you have good projects that have been conceived and developed to a degree that you can legitimately put together an application for federal funding that tells the federal government, here's what we want to do, here's why it's important, here's the the benefits that we're going to achieve then you know those states and localities are gonna be better positioned to actually work with the resources that are available. And so one of the things that we talk about is that, you know, particularly in states and particularly with localities you know, the extent to which those places can uh, can use their own funds to invest in those plans, to invest in project development, you know, it's really going to leave those places better prepared to then take the federal money that is available and translate that into projects that are going to be, you know, a benefit to people through avoided losses.
0: Take a state like Montana. They had that one big event, that one big flooding event, and that's the one that kept coming to the fore when we were out there. And they haven't had others. Is it tougher to convince a group of legislators or whatever that, it could happen here again, it could happen tomorrow, then it would be in a state like New Jersey that got slammed with Superstorm Sandy. Is it tougher in a situation like a Montana versus a New Jersey?
2: Uh, Sometimes. I mean, there's certainly a a recency issue to deal with and that, uh, you know, the places that have recently had a a big, major, catastrophic flood event, it's going to be more top of mind. And uh, frankly, people that work, you know, within states, state legislatures, governor's offices, like I, you know, I give them all the credit in the world because they're trying to deal with a lot of issues at at, one time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so places that maybe haven't had, you know, that big, significant flood recently, you know, it may not be the top priority when they go into, say, a legislative session. But, you know, one of the things we talk about is the fact that, you know, if you take a state like Kentucky, for instance, right, uh, you know, Kentucky hadn't had that big major flood until last year when, you know, unfortunately, you know, wide swaths of the eastern part of the state uh, were inundated. And so, you know, one of the things that we do talk to states about is the idea of if it happens other places, it can happen here. Um, and, you know, you don't want to necessarily be caught unprepared when that major flood does happen. You know, I think it's actually you know, sort of Advantageous to work with a state before they've had that uh, that catastrophic event, but yeah, I mean it, it can be difficult, right? You know, one of the things that you talked about with New Jersey. They've got this, this effort called New Jersey Pact, which is called Protecting Against Climate Threats. Yeah. And as part of that, mm-hmm. you know, they've done a lot of modeling work out to the year 2100 to understand the implications of sea level rise, to understand the implications of inland flooding, to understand what happens as they experience more severe and repetitive you know, major tropical events. And so, I mean, they've got a pretty good idea as to what's going to happen. And so if you have that information in place, I think it becomes much easier to build support for doing something about it.
0: Yeah, and New Jersey and New York, you know, Lord knows, they t- they've had their share of trouble in recent years with Sandy and other other storms that weren't as publicized as Sandy and a lot of flooding, even in Manhattan.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, with New Jersey specifically, so, uh, you know, you have a uh, Hurricane Ida uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that... Uh, that obviously devastated my home state of Louisiana. But I think what people sort of are, are less aware of is the fact that that then traveled uh, you know, through the middle part of the country and then up the eastern seaboard and caused significant flooding in New Jersey. Um, and so, you know, even if you're you're talking about a state that may not be as prone um, to one of these big hurricanes, one of these big tropical events, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get cascading impacts down the line, right? So if you talk about an inland state like, say, Tennessee, right? I mean, you know, if a storm comes ashore in the Gulf, uh, you know, chances are it may not be the Category Four hurricane by the time it gets there, but it can certainly be a rainmaker uh, that can cause a lot of problems for an inland state.
0: Dump a lot of water. Yeah, well, let's talk about New Jersey for a sec- For a second, I want to talk about the states that you think uh, are doing a good job at this. New Jersey, we covered this. We actually um, highlighted New Jersey's initiative in a September twenty-two podcast in an interview with a noted landscape architect friend of mine Carter Van Dyke who's involved in the effort there but tell us about Pew's involvement and provide an update on what's happening in New Jersey.
2: Well, yeah, a couple of things. So I mentioned New Jersey PACT, which I think, you know, certainly the data behind it is something that we would uh, applaud and encourage. They released the state's first uh, climate change resilience strategy uh, in 2021, which calls for a series of, uh, of interventions with respect to sea level rise and, and flood risk. But what's great about New Jersey is that they've developed good information, right? It extends out yeah. to 2100, mm-hmm. um, and they're able to, to react with respect to that information. So two things that I'll highlight that we've been involved with specifically in New Jersey um, so we've worked with a few cities there, notably uh, Hoboken, Secaucus, and Patterson, uh, to develop feasibility store studies for stormwater utilities, um, which is you know really an effort to ascertain how is a place um, equipped to deal with uh, a, a current flood condition and a future flood condition. Do you have the uh, the infrastructure in place to 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 move and absorb water? Um, another thing that we're working on in New Jersey is uh, we're working with their. Um, uh, DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, to develop a process by which they can work with localities directly to make sure that, um, that when locals develop local comprehensive plans, um, they're incorporating these uh, these future models for flooding within those plans, right? So how does the state work effectively with locals to develop good plans that then sort of incorporate the data that the state has and also help the, the locality leverage state and federal funding to do something about that problem? So. Um, you know, when you talk about the idea of what does a sort of a flood risk assessment look like, how do you ascertain mm-hmm. flood vulnerability? Yep. That's not sort of as as easy as it might sound because it's one thing to understand, so, you know, where the water is going to be, but it's another thing to either understand how it's going to impact, uh, you know, people where they currently live or where you're anticipating a, a, a future build out uh, down the line. So, you're really developing a, a good process that everybody can sort of adhere to, and the state can evaluate to, uh, you know, to, to really tell a locality whether or not they're they're looking at the problem in the right way. Uh, you know, that's something that it sounds very wonky, but it's you know we're we're kind of wonky people at Pew, so uh, it's something <laughs> that we're we're happy to something that we're happy to dive in on.
0: Wonky is good. <laughs> wonky is good. Absolutely. What other states stand out in your mind for their their willingness, and their ability to address flooding today and prepare for what Mother Nature is going to dish out in the future. Aren't North and South Carolina two of them and Maine another one?
2: Yeah, North Carolina uh, really started taking a hard look after Hurricane Florence in 2018. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper has shown uh, quite a bit of leadership on the topic. He actually signed an executive order uh, sometime back that required the state to develop a, a comprehensive uh risk assessment and resilience plan uh which is currently in place so that's that's a positive step forward the state is also actually developing what they're calling a a flood blueprint Um, and so they're looking at from a, a watershed perspective if you anticipate a higher volume of water in one part of the watershed how do streams and rivers take that water to other places and what are the implications of that uh that problem from a hydrologic perspective so that that's all you know really positive um you mentioned south carolina uh, Governor McMaster in South Carolina, and, and I'll, I will note when I sort of talk about, you know, Governor Cooper in North Carolina, Governor McMaster in South Carolina, that's a Democrat, that's a Republican, this is a, a, a bipartisan thing. Um, I think everybody is against flooding, regardless of what other, uh, you know, political leanings people may have. And they should be. Um, yeah. so they should be, absolutely. And Governor McMaster has done a lot of good work in, uh, in South Carolina. They've stood up uh, what's called the South Carolina Office of Resilience. Um, and they're currently in the process of developing that state's uh, first resilience plan, which uh, is due uh, this summer. Um, and so we're pretty uh, excited to work with them on what that entails and help them implement some of the recommendations in that plan. Uh, and you also mentioned Maine. Maine has an effort called Maine Won't Wait, um, and that's their, their broader sort of uh, effort to address climate change at the state level. Uh, within that, um, you know, they've done a lot of work to anticipate level rise uh, and future uh, surge events, Uh, as well as those inland conditions, sort of similar to what we described in New Jersey. So Mm -hmm. those three states have really done a lot of positive work. Okay. You
0: know what? Uh, We had somebody on uh, not too long ago talk about Pew's efforts at marshalling the forces along the Atlantic coast to save one million acres of uh, salt marsh. marsh. And that's all part of it, too, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right. So that's an effort called uh, SASB, and uh, I apologize. I don't, I don't remember what the acronym stands for specifically at the moment, but you know, that really describes what happens when seal rise occurs. So if you have natural marshland in a place, right, saltwater uh, intrusion is going to cause that marsh to, to, quote, unquote, migrate inland. And because of the ecological value of that marshland, one of the things that we're really looking hard at is, well, where does that marshland migrate to? How does the ecology of the area change? How does that support natural habitat? Um and so you know when we talk about sort of the 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 people impacts on flooding, there's also a, uh, a you know a, an ecological impact, and those things are related, right? So in a place like sure. North Carolina, for instance, you know those marshlands are going to provide buffer when there is a hurricane that comes ashore right and so if you lose that natural buffer and you know i'll, I'll go back again to my home state of louisiana they, they've sort of had this problem acutely where they've had this land loss condition and they don't have those natural landforms in place to to cut wave action and to cut the energy of a hurricane when it when it comes ashore you know that's really sort of the the downside risk right and so it's really important to to preserve those natural habitats uh, along the uh, the eastern seaboard Uh, So that, you know, they provide, you know, good buffer for those storms that do come ashore, good buffer for for sea level rise as it continues to uh, increase in the future, uh, but also to to provide those ecosystem impacts that that we think are uh, important.
0: Does a landlocked state stand out in your mind? Uh, You mentioned Kentucky, it's a landlocked state. Are they doing anything in this realm?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I think you've seen the, the president make a few appearances there, as yep. well as uh, Minority Leader uh, McConnell.
0: McConnell. How about insurance companies? Seems like they have a vested interest in this whole subject. Are they, are they participatory?
2: Well, sure. I, you know, one of the things with flooding is, uh, you know, most of the, the flood insurance across the country is uh, underwritten by the National Flood Insurance Program, so mm-hmm. the federal government itself. Um, and you know one of the problems that you've seen over and over again is that as these big flood events happen, that program becomes overburdened. And ultimately, Congress writes off uh, you know these huge sums of debt that are accumulated through the program. And so you know one of the things that, that we're trying to do at Pew is to work directly with the federal government, with the the Federal Emergency Management Agency that administers uh, the National Flood Insurance program, to make sure that that you know as they're anticipating risk, as they're developing data sources, both, those data sources are, are right and accurate and project out the, the occurrence of future floods. But they also, um, you know, develop an actuary table. Um, and that's sort of a, a wonky insurance term for how much you're going to pay for an a, a insurance policy to make sure that that, that policy is priced correctly. Because one of the problems that you run into is if you have insurance that is, that is underpriced, you're going to incentivize development activity somewhere where you shouldn't. Right. And that's not that's something that we don't want to see.
0: Mm hmm okay now i would imagine there's is a trip to california in your future
2: well (laughs) it's a good question seems like Uh, it would be
0: right
2: yeah i mean obviously with all of the the recent problems in california that's a state that, that we'll obviously uh look at and we have good relationships in state government in california what i will say is that you know california has really done more for itself leading up to this series of atmospheric rivers uh if you will um, to prepare themselves for flooding. Uh, I, I don't want to say more so than any other state across the country, but they've done a lot to develop good plans, good projects. I think one of the things that you've seen nationally, uh, there's a program called uh, Building Resilient Infrastructure in Communities that's also run through FEMA. Uh-huh. Um, they've they've been receiving a lot of that money. It's a competitive program precisely because they have uh, high quality projects to uh, to put into applications. And so uh, you know, while you wouldn't want to see this type of uh, occurrence anywhere, right, When you talk about these flooding events, talk about atmospheric rivers, um, you know, California has done quite a bit to prepare for this reality.
0: Well, Matt, I get the Pew uh, Magazine, I think it's quarterly, right? And I get a lot of my information out of there. But your website, fill our listeners in on what the website URL is in terms of anybody who wants to get learn more about this subject and maybe bring it up in your locale.
2: Uh, absolutely. So I would direct everybody to go to www.pewtrust.org slash floods, and you can find all of the, the information that documents our work. If you want to reach out to me, you can find my contact information there. So yeah, we would really encourage everybody to take a look at all the good information that, that we've got uh, cataloged on our webpage.
0: Yeah, knowledge is power, right? Always has been, always knowledge will be. Knowledge is power. Always yep. will be. Matt Saunders, Senior Manager, Flood Prepared Communities, Pew Charitable Trust. Great information. Oh, thanks, guys. Hey, Kev, great news and hello listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever.
1: You have Unison, right?
0: Yep. Paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments. How did they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details.
1: Remember the name Provia. your single source for professional class entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing stone and metal roofing products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship—the Provia way.
0: That's this week's podcast. Your valuable home comes to you every week on the New Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular
1: podcast directories.